the Lord would have us hear his voice this morning from the Gospel of Matthew. So if you will turn to Matthew chapter 23, we will be in verses 1 through 12 as we investigate this topic of contrasting true versus false shepherds. Matthew chapter 23. Before we examine the text, let me get you to think with me a little bit. It's unfortunate that I believe that most people are unable to detect true versus false shepherds. I believe that perhaps the greatest need in evangelical churches today is the need for biblical discernment. It's appalling to see so many Christian people embracing the deceptions of virtually every religious fad that comes down the pike. From the prayer of Jabez to the purpose-driven life and the purpose-driven church, Christians seem to swallow it all, hook, line, and sinker. You can go to almost every popular Christian bookstore, and I would submit to you that about 80, maybe as much as 90% of the bestsellers contain virulent strains of false doctrine. And very few people have enough discernment to really even spot it. Worse yet, when someone tries to expose the error, you're criticized as being divisive and arrogant and narrow-minded and so on. There's many examples that I could use. I'll use one that came up the other day. There's a book out called Wild at Heart. And some guys were talking about it, and, and uh, I've read the book, and, and they were all excited about it, and I, I was just dumbfounded that they were excited about it. Certainly, the author rightfully exposes our culture's feminization and emasculation of men, and he tries to offer a biblical perspective, but in so doing, he utterly eviscerates the nature and the character of God. Talks about how that God is basically wild at heart, and we need to be like him. That God is basically a risk-taker with his creation. He's not real sure how it's all going to turn out, and he is an adventurer, and we need to be like him. Dear friends, that is not the God of the Bible. And the book totally misconstrues also the condition of the human heart, grossly distorting the great doctrines of justification and sanctification. And and with an unbiblical view of God and an unbiblical view of man, especially the nature of a believer's heart, the book is fundamentally flawed. And yet many well-meaning Christians don't see it. They have no discernment. And you ask why? Why is this the case? Well, certainly part of it is they have an ignorance of sound doctrine. And therefore, they are victims of false teachers. But dear friends, if you do not understand sound doctrine, true biblical doctrine, you will not have discernment. And you will be easy prey for the charlatans that are out there today. Routinely, I get mail and phone calls from ministries, many of them even in this area, that solicit my involvement or our church's involvement and they want to send some speaker here or they are inviting us to some seminar or or to join with them in some event. And of course, typically, and I should say ultimately, it's because people are wanting money. 
But I always will ask them a question, and that would be, would you, first of all, send me your doctrinal statement? I mean, I want to know what people believe before I throw in with them, so to speak. And it's amazing. Virtually without exception, their response will be one of confusion. And they will say, well, you know, we don't even have a doctrinal. Why is that important? And they, they just seem shocked. And certainly the idea of, of abandoning Bible doctrine is, is all over the place today. In fact, this is the very mindset that has given impetus to this, this new movement, this emergent church movement you've heard me talk about before. In their desire to be relevant to the culture, they pride themselves in discarding all Bible doctrine. The large church down the road off of Old Hickory Boulevard is one that made that public. The reason the church went from 250 to 7,000 in a matter of months is that they got rid of all Bible doctrine because it is divisive and they introduced emotional Pentecostal worship, according to the pastor. But in the emerging church, they will say things like we need to learn to welcome confusion They will say that doubt is the friend of faith and they have basically canonized postmodern skepticism. And now if you look at it, as you study kind of the movements that are out there, and I know many of you probably don't, but that is certainly part of my responsibility as a pastor to warn you and to protect you. What you will see is that the new value in our postmodern Evangelical culture is something beyond this whole issue of tolerance. That has been the big thing for a long time. But now the new value is the wholesale abandonment of biblical truth in favor of skepticism. Learning to embrace mystery rather than conquer it is one of their statements in the emerging church. They will say things like we don't want to go to church. We want to be the church, whatever that means. We don't want to know the truth. We want to live it. Well, friends, how can you live the truth if you don't know it? It's beyond me. The truth is, as we prepare our minds for the text this morning, the word of God tells us that the church is the pillar and the support of the truth. The Apostle Paul made that clear to all of us through his letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.14. When Peter preached on the day of Pentecost... We read in Acts 2.41 that 3,000 were saved. And in verse 42 says, they continued steadfastly in what? In the apostles' doctrine. In Titus 1, verse 9, we read that an elder must hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. And Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 2, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And in 2 Timothy 4, 2, Paul told Timothy, preach the word. And he went on to say, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. And folks, we're living in that day to day. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. And we see the result of that today in this whole notion that we've got to embrace skepticism and jettison Bible doctrine. Beloved, the scriptures truly and clearly affirm that God is truth. 
that he speaks truth and that God cannot lie. The word of God also affirms that Satan is a liar. He is the father of lies and he is dedicated to the task of deceiving people. And throughout the universe, we see the thesis and the antithesis. We see truth and we see error. We see how God reveals truth and Satan comes along and distorts it. So this is a dichotomy that pervades literally every aspect of our existence. There's two kinds of people in the world. If you want to summarize it real basically, there are people who know the truth and there are people who are deceived. And wherever God sows truth, Satan comes along and oversows that field with lies. In fact, our Lord said in Matthew 7:15, "Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing." In other words, in the garments of a, of a prophet or of a shepherd. They're going to look like a pastor, but they're not. He says, "But inwardly they are ravenous wolves." Later in Matthew 24:11, Jesus warned that many false Christs would come in the future, just before his second coming, counterfeiters, phonies, charlatans that deceive millions into following them. And in 1 John 2.8, we read that even now there are many, many antichrists in the world. Well, if there were many then, think how many there are now. And certainly in the book of Revelation, where we have the description of the consummation of the church age, we read of a time that will be characterized by deception, by lies dominated by the false prophet and the antichrist. Dear friends, these purveyors of of false teaching and false doctrine have been around since the fall, since Adam and Eve. And now some 7,000 years later, since that time, we are witnessing the cumulative effect of layers and layers and generations and generations of lies and deceptions. False teaching is now pandemic in our world and very few people know the truth about God. Very few people, even in churches, really understand the doctrines of grace, as we heard earlier from our from our friend in Russia. Very few people understand the gospel, understand scripture. That's why in Second Peter 2, 1. Peter describes them as destructive heresies, and this is only going to increase until Christ re- returns. Dear friends, let's prepare our minds this morning to, as we receive the word by remembering that we live in perilous times. These are days of apostasy. Satan knows that his time is short. And so he is going to mislead the elect as best he can and mislead those that do not know the Lord. There will be an ever increasing assault upon the truth. And I believe that he is in full attack mode today, even as I speak. Every imaginable cult and false religion is exploding in growth. You realize that even in our country. I read the other day that the U.S. Postal Service has now issued a holiday stamp for the Islamic faith that commemorates the two major Islamic holidays of Ramadan and the Feast of Sacrifice. And as bad as that may be, worse yet, I believe that we have false teachers and unqualified preachers and so on filling most pulpits, even in evangelical Christianity. Now. Having said all that, it is little wonder that this very topic is the topic of Jesus' last public sermon on earth. 
attesting to the paramount importance of its context, of its context and its content. Here we have in the text before us a scathing denunciation of false shepherds, of counterfeit spiritual gurus, along with a detailed description of their character and their conduct. And this he will contrast with a picture of true shepherds. Now, before I read the text, let me give you the context once again. It's been a long day in the temple for the Lord. It's the Passion Week. He will soon be betrayed. It's Wednesday before his betrayal here and his crucifixion. The Jewish antagonists have been silenced, according to verse 46 of chapter 22. And the Jewish elite now are standing there with their mouths kind of hanging open. They don't know what else to say. They've been utterly humiliated by Jesus. And they're standing there in their ostentatious garb with their funny little hats and all of their tassels and so on. And now Jesus turns his attention to his disciples and to the multitudes. And here's what he says, beginning in verse one of Matthew 23. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. And they tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. And they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats at the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called by men rabbi. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Dear friends, if I were to come to you this morning... And tell you that I have received an official warning from the police and from the FBI that there are murderers and serial rapists and pedophiles and other sexual predators living in your neighborhood. I would submit to you that I would have your undivided attention. You would want to know where they live. You would want to know their names. You would want to know what they look like. And you would then take every necessary precaution to protect yourself and your family. Dear friends, my prayer is that this morning you will do the same with the information that God is about to give you from his word concerning a far more formidable enemy than what I have just described. An enemy that is so clever, that is so cunning, that is so convincing that he can seduce your entire family into hell. Jesus now describes five very obvious characteristics of false religious leaders. This morning we'll only be able to look at the first three. I'll follow up the next Sunday with the other two. 
And by the way, it's fascinating as we look at these this morning that you don't have to be a highly trained theologian to somehow analyze the nuances of these teachings of these false teachers. In fact, the characteristics that the Lord is about to give are easy to spot, even for the most undiscerning. There are certainly other passages in the New Testament that go into much greater detail, and we'll look at some of those even this morning. But here's what the Lord would have us see in this text. Let me give you the five characteristics of false leaders. First of all, they're self-appointed, not God-ordained. Secondly, he will point out that they are hypocrites who do not practice what they preach. Thirdly, we're going to see that they lack genuine compassion. Fourthly, they are desperate to be noticed. And fifthly, they will be egomaniacs. First of all, notice the first characteristic that they are self-appointed, not God-ordained. Notice verse 2. The Lord says, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Now, the Jews would have understood this. They understood that the chair of Moses was a reference to divine authority. Moses was God's spokesman. He was the lawgiver. He was divinely appointed. He was divinely ordained. He was divinely gifted to be able to say to the people, thus saith the Lord. And the word chair in Greek is cathedra. We get our word cathedral from that term. And it originally referred to a position or place of spiritual or ecclesiastical authority. In fact, you will read about chairs of certain departments and universities. These would be esteemed professors. And the term also referred to the actual stone or seat that is found in the front of a synagogue, it would be a stone seat. You can see them even even in some of the ruins today where the authoritative teacher would sit and come and speak to the people. So Jesus is saying here that the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in a position of authority. God has not commissioned them. God has not called them. God has not appointed them. God has not gifted them. They are self-appointed. They are self-styled teachers. Now, this would have received many nods of approval from the Jews that were listening to Jesus because many of them were horribly frustrated with the myriad of silly rules and regulations they were required to endure. Many of them saw the contradictions in what their leaders told them and had many questions but were not allowed to ask. By the way, friends, remember that error demands tolerance, but truth welcomes scrutiny. And many people today are in various religious systems where honest questioning is not tolerated. You have to believe whatever you're told. You have to follow the party line. You're not allowed to ask any questions. I get emails from listeners almost weekly that attest to that fact. By the way, as a footnote, the early reformers experienced an enormous following overnight because they literally lanced up, a, lanced a boil of pent up frustration of many people who saw the hypocrisy and the insanity of much of what they were required to believe. Well, the same thing was beginning to happen even with the multitudes that were standing before Jesus. By the way, while many of these people called for his crucifixion, 
and the next day. Undoubtedly, many of them as well later became converts. You realize that by the time Pentecost rolled around, there were several thousand converts. So the Spirit of God was at work, even as the Lord was speaking to them about the self-styled, self-appointed prophets and teachers that, frankly, had been around for centuries. And by the way, most of them, even in that day, certainly in this day, unlike Jesus, amass enormous followings. You remember when God called Isaiah in Isaiah 6? He told him that, in essence, only a tiny fraction of people will ever listen to you. You'll spend most of your life speaking the truth and most people will not listen to you. In Isaiah 30, in verse 9, he tells him, For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, You must not see visions. And to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. In other words, we don't want to hear from God. Speak to us pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. In other words, tell us what we want to hear. We don't want to hear the truth. And that's what the seers, the prophets would do in that day. Because they did not have divine authority to speak from God. They didn't even know what God was saying. Jeremiah chapter 14 tells us the same thing there. God speaks through the prophet in verse 14 and says, then the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name. Now catch this. I have neither sent them nor commanded them nor spoken to them. They are prophesying to you a false vision, divination, futility and the deception of their own minds. And by the way, there were no, no more prophets after the exile. And so the scribes and the Pharisees basically took their place. And we see the same thing today. We see men in pulpits and women. And by the way, whenever you see women in leadership, that is always a sign biblically of spiritual defection. But we see men and women that somewhere along the line in their life got a quiver in their liver and they felt that God had called them to preach or to be in some position of leadership. And many of them. In fact, the vast majority of them that we see today have no training. They have no affirmation of their giftedness, of their qualifications by other qualified, shall we say, professionals, people that truly orthodox theologians that understand biblical truth that could attest to their giftedness. And many times they feel called to preach in the morning. And I have literally seen in churches that that night they're preaching. By the way, whenever you hear a pastor or some leader telling you that he has received some vision from God, that is a dead giveaway that he's a phony. A dead giveaway. The canon is closed, according to Jude 3 and other passages. There is no more revelation. All that God intended to say to us, he has said between Genesis and Revelation. There's no more revelation. In fact, Jude describes false teachers in Jude 8 as dream dreamers. Enopneazomani, a very rare Greek term, but it basically means those who either have an overactive imagination or they have legitimately received a vision. But obviously, according to the context, it is not from God. It is from Satan or some demon. And that's what you have with many people today that claim that they're speaking for God. But in fact, they do not. 
And if they claim that they have some vision from God, you need to run from that individual. Well, in Jeremiah 23, God goes on to describe the nature of false prophets in verse 16. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts. Do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination. There's the concept that Jude talks about. Not from the mouth of the Lord. And then if you read on in Jeremiah, you will read how that he goes on to describe how that the people are wanting the leaders to tell them what they want to hear and so on. And then in verse 21, we read, I did not send these prophets, but they ran. The idea is that they ran on their own. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have announced my words to my people and would have turned them back from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. You see, friends, God's message will always be one of repentance. And that's typically not what people want to hear. Verse 25 of Jeremiah 23, he says, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy falsely in my name, saying, I had a dream. I had a dream. And God says, how long is there anything in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy falsehood? Even these prophets of the deception of their own heart who intend to make my people forget my name by their dreams, which they relate to one another, just as their fathers forgot my name because of Baal. Friends, please understand that self-appointed false teachers inevitably distort the nature and the character of God. They will do all they can to somehow rob him of his glory. Because you see, inherent in the very name of God will be all of his glorious attributes. Instead, when you listen to what they say, ultimately, they will undermine the holiness of God. They will reject the sovereignty of God. They will mock his jealousy as the only true and living God and the only way to salvation. They will even ridicule his avenging wrath. You see, people don't want to hear that. They prefer the dreams and the visions of the ear-tickling sermonettes of self-appointed preachers. In fact, in Jeremiah 23, verse 28, he says, The prophet who has a dream may relate his dream, but let him who has my word speak my word in truth. And in verse 29, he says, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord? And like a hammer which shatters a rock. You see, dear friends, men who are genuine spokesmen of the living God and who possess the authority of the living God will inevitably preach fiery truth that will burn away the dross of sin. Like the burning coals of the seraphim that came and were put upon Isaiah's dirty mouth. And many people don't want to hear that. You see, the message of the true spokesman of the Most High God will inevitably be hard. It will be forceful. It will be authoritative. And it will break through the walls of deception, of hypocrisy, of pride, because it will be like a hammer that shatters a rock. And then when that spokesman is done, only the mercies of a transforming, redeeming and saving God and transforming God 
will be able to put the pieces back together and shape that individual into his glorious image. Well, this was the very opposite of apostate Judaism. And the vast majority of what we see today, we see people today, they run into church and we hear preachers not calling people to repentance, but to recovery. Sin is no longer sin, an offense to a holy God, but rather it is a mistake. Church is no longer the pillar and the support of the truth. It's a social club. It's a place where you can go and meet with your friends and be entertained with a great band and have some Starbucks coffee. You know, repeatedly, Jesus warned of this dangerous threat of false teachers. He likened them in John 10, verse 1, as thieves who come only to steal and kill and destroy. And in Matthew 24, 24, he speaks of false Christs and false prophets who will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. By the way, there's a great promise inherent in that, and that is that the elect will ultimately not be deceived. Isn't that a wonderful truth? They might be temporarily, but ultimately they won't be. Dear friends, you show me someone who willingly remains incarcerated in some ridiculous, unbiblical religious system, some deviant form of Christianity like Roman Catholicism, or some group masquerading as some new novel or, or more spiritual or more enlightened than others type of a group like the emergent church. And I'll show you a person who has never been born again. False teachers, undiscerning disciples. What a tragedy. Men and many times women who have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. The Spirit of God speaks to us in Second Peter 2 about their characteristics. And here's what we read in that chapter. And I'll give you just some samples. They are those who secretly introduce destructive heresies. And many will follow their sensuality. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. They will indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. They will be daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Their eyes will be full of adultery that never cease from sin. Enticing, unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed. They will speak out arrogant words of vanity. They will entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality. Those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. Dear friends, the result of that is an apostate church that we see today in many, many areas around the world. A church that bears little resemblance to the true church described in the New Testament. And friends, all of this begins when naive people who lack discernment, and many of them are well-meaning people, follow after those who have given themselves the authority. This is the opposite of those who are following those who have been truly called and gifted and set apart by God, confirmed by proven men of God and men of the word. There are numerous churches around our great country where you have people in leadership who are utterly ignorant of basic Bible doctrine. Imagine if I were to come to you and say, you know what, folks, <laughs> I, I want to be an orthopedic surgeon. 
And I'm going to open up an office down here in Pleasant View next week. And I hope you come. I'd love to work on you. Now, how many of you would come? Well, obviously, no one. Why? Because we've got too much discernment to fall for that. I have no training in orthopedics. I'm no surgeon. I'm not board certified. I have not endured rigorous training. I have not proven myself through a residency program in a reputable hospital. Do you realize that used to be the same mentality when it came to pastors? That during the time of the early days of the church, certainly in the days of the Puritans, no one would ever ascend what was called the sacred desk. In other words, a position of authority in a church. You would never ascend this desk without the proper ordination and affirmation of highly trained Orthodox theologians. And if you did so, it was considered spiritual malpractice and you could be imprisoned. My, how things have changed. You see, ministers in those days were considered physicians of the soul. And rightly so. How much more important is it to be, shall we say, board certified as a physician of the soul, even more so than a physician of the body? We need to have men that are called and gifted by God to preach the whole counsel of God, to contend earnestly for the faith, remaining ever vigilant to the never ending assaults against the truth. Men that will exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Men who will equip the saints for the work of service, as we read in Ephesians 4, until they all attain, all of the saints attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. As they help every person within the church reach maturity and on it goes. You see, none of this, dear friends, will ever occur if a spiritual leader is self-appointed. He's got to be God-ordained. And like the phony leaders Jesus was condemning, most today are men who have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. He goes on to say, therefore, all that they tell you do and observe. Now, that may be confusing to you, but what he is saying here is even false teachers many times are going to say some things that are true. The Pharisees at times said things that were true about the law. And Jesus is saying whatever they say is true, whatever really conforms to Scripture, shall we say, do those things. But he goes on to say, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. And this leads us to the second characteristic of a false teacher. They are hypocrites who do not practice what they preach. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees were notorious for telling everyone how to live, how to honor God, how to obey the law. They had endless lists of right and wrong. We've gone over some of them before. Just ridiculous things. But they were unable to live consistently with the very truths that occasionally they would teach. Now, why is that the case? Well, the reason is they are unregenerate. There has never been a transformation of their heart. They do not have the indwelling spirit. Therefore, there is nothing in them to restrain the flesh. All they have is good old-fashioned willpower, and we all know how long that works. Paul reminds us in Romans 7.22 that the only, the only people that can really live out truth, the only person that can somehow be obedient to what God has commanded is one who is born again and therefore 
can, as he says, joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. These people could not joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. They didn't know what it really meant to love the Lord their God with everything that they had and to love their neighbor as much as they love themselves. You see, friends, I I want to remind you again, and I hope you catch this. These are great theological doctrinal truths that I want to make make simple, and yet they, they are so profound. You see, regeneration, this transformation that occurs when one comes to Christ, is transformation. It is not mere addition. It is not merely adding to your life some new rules and thoughts about Jesus. You see, at conversion, the term literally means that, that, that you're turning from one thing and you're going in a different direction. It's not merely adding new rules to your life. You see, genuine salvation, to use our modern vernacular, is not a makeover. It is a takeover. And when you try to just kind of make over and make yourself look like a Christian, it's not going to last very long. But in fact, regeneration is a takeover. Hypocrites don't have this. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, we read that if any man is in Christ, he is what? He is a new creature. The old thing passed away and behold, the new things have come. You know, you can look around the world today and you see many false religionists who conform to a variety of very rigid codes of conduct that they have concocted. Many of them will adhere to striking regulations of morality, and it would make them look very devout. But friends, all of this is done in the flesh and for the flesh. It's not done by the power of God for the glory of God. Let me give you some examples. You look at Islam. Well, the Muslims would tout that they are very moral people. You look at the women and they're covered up. All you can see is, well, in some places you can't see anything, but maybe their their fingers Maybe their eyes a little bit, and so it depends upon their particular uh, culture. But the women are all covered up. In fact, when I was in Israel, and others have seen this as well, we had a few times we went to the Mediterranean Sea to enjoy the water, and you could see some of the Islamic people there, and the women are all covered up, and they're out in the water with that whole garb on. Can you imagine that? And they're all huddled together, and the men are over here playing, and they're looking at all the women walking along the beach in their bathing suits. But... If you talk to missionaries who work with the Muslims, who would appear to be very moral, you'll quickly learn that there is staggering immorality that occurs in their cultures. They are utterly addicted to pornography, a well-documented fact. In fact, a missionary friend that's been in Indonesia working with them, working especially with the women, say that one of the pastimes for the women is to uh, get together and watch pornographic videos. And the men love to do the same thing. She was saying that even in Indonesia, during the tsunami that occurred not too long ago, there are numerous stories of the men fondling and raping women that they were trying to help. You see, the point is, just because you look moral doesn't mean you are. That you practice what you preach. Friends, you can have all of the trappings of religion and not know the living God. You see this in Roman Catholicism. You see it in the scandal of the Roman Catholic priesthood. These men have been historically notorious for their immorality and for other forms of wickedness. And yet they wear a veneer of spirituality with all of the hats 
and, and, and the robes and the titles and the beads and the rituals and the holy water and all that stuff. Reminds me of the false teachers that Paul warned Timothy about in 1 Timothy 4, 2 and 3 that were advocating celibacy and prohibiting marriage. Remember that text? And commanding people to abstain from food. You see, for many people, true spirituality was measured by all kinds of abstinences and self-deprivation. And 1 Timothy 4, 7 describes their teaching as profane and old wives' fables, which do nothing, frankly, but bring about ungodliness. And see, this should be no surprise to us because these people do not know God. There's nothing in them to restrain the flesh. I was somewhat surprised, and yet as I thought about it, I really wasn't, when I was in Israel to learn that the Orthodox Jewish men, ones with all of the hats and the curls and all of these things and the phylacteries that are typically down by the prayer wall, are said to be the number one customers of the prostitutes in Israel. Years of counseling highly visible Christian leaders and artists, I was stunned as I began to see the hypocrisy that was there. In fact, I promised to distance myself from it, and I've endeavored to do so ever since. People who say the right things, but the pattern of their lives reveals something very, very different, betray a very different picture. And I must say that even to this day, I have an aversion to much of contemporary Christian music, a lot of gospel music. Not only because of the superficial and many times heretical lyrics, and I'm not saying that it's all bad because it's not. And we have to be careful as we discern these things. But friends, I know the hypocrisy. People that do not practice what they preach. By the way, a false teacher is really anyone who has an audience where they claim to speak for God. It could be a Sunday school teacher, an author, a singer, some artist, some writer, whatever. But friends, if they are unregenerate, this is the point. According to 1 Timothy 6.5, they will be men of a depraved mind. You see, they will, they will have minds that have never been transformed. They might have... Numerous theological degrees, they might be best-selling authors, and you always want to be careful with that because there's a, there's a broad way and a narrow way, and typically whenever you see the broad way that many are going to find, that's usually a dead giveaway that it's going to lead you to destruction. But according to Scripture, if they're unregenerate, their minds are corrupt. And that's why you have to be so careful. Romans 8, 7 says that they're that their carnal mind is enmity against God. In other words, it's, it's filled with earthly wisdom that fights against God. James 3 talks about that. James 4 as well. Romans 1.28 says that God gives them over to a reprobate mind. In other words, the, the, their mental faculties don't function in the moral and in the spiritual realm. They will not react positively to God's truth. 1 Corinthians 2.14 Paul calls them natural men who do not accept the things of the Spirit of God. In other words, they have no capacity to understand truth. They, they cannot understand God. They cannot discern it, much less live it. Paul says in Ephesians 4.18 that their understanding is darkened and is alienated from God. And Colossians 1.21 says that they are alienated and enemies in their mind by wicked works. Friday night, 
I decided to sit down for a minute to rest, and I was thinking about what I would share with you this morning. And I thought, you know, I'm going to turn on the TV and surf the channels here a little bit to see um, who's preaching. Because I'm thinking about false teachers, and I know how many are on television. So I looked at seven TV preachers with enormous congregations. And as I listened for about five to ten minutes of of each of them um, over a period of about an hour and a half, I discovered that really only one was preaching the truth, and it was quite watered down, but at least for the most part it was true. But six of the rest of them were blatant false teachers, blatant, blatant heresies. And it's interesting, the common theme among all of them was this whole prosperity theology thing, you know, not to mention a gross distortion concerning the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, lots of sensationalism and emotionalism, calling people to claim promises from God that God never made. One charlatan said, uh, he, he quoted Romans 8.28 in the context of his, um, of his little sermon, and he said, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And then here's what he said. And can I add one thing? By the way, let me stop here. As soon as somebody says that, you know that you're in trouble. All things are worked together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And can I add one thing? And to those who are willing to plant their seed faith and trust God for the increase. And everybody started clapping. And as the camera panned the audience, I, I didn't know whether to weep or to shout in anger. It, it is just so sad to see undiscerning ignorant and probably desperate people who want to hear truth being deceived by somebody like that. And of course, you know what the seed faith is. That means you send me your money to support my ministry and then God's going to, you know, give you a great harvest. And here we have just another self-appointed preacher with a depraved mind, bilking, naive, undiscerning people of their money. In Jude verses 12 through 13 He describes them as trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Pretty sobering, isn't it? Well, Jesus goes on to describe these false teachers as not only self-appointed, as hypocrites who do not practice what they preach, but Thirdly, they will lack genuine compassion. They will be, in parentheses, you might add, overbearing legalists. Notice verse 4. They tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. Now, folks, here's the picture. And you see this. This is common in third world countries. You've seen people. They will take a donkey or sometimes a camel, but most of the time a donkey. And they will load that poor little critter down with so much weight that he can hardly walk. And if he begins to balk a little bit, they'll get behind them and start beating on him with a stick. And they're not carrying anything. Whenever I see that, I, I, I really get this feeling, you know, I'd like to take about 300 pounds and strap on that guy's back and give me the stick. And let's see how you like it. But this is, the, this is what Jesus is, is picturing here. The Pharisees are going to tie up heavy loads laid on men's shoulders. Well, the Jews identified with all of this because, you see, friends, Judaism in that day was unbearable. 
The people were burdened down with countless rules that they could not keep. They were saddled with with loads they could not bear. And then the rulers would come along and berate them for their lack of spirituality. So they felt all of this guilt. What a depressing thing. This is always the case in false religions where people are trying to earn their way to heaven. There's all of these rules and regulations. You talk to anybody that's come out of any of the cults and you will read about this and hear about this. They tell you when to pray. They tell you how to pray. They tell you what to pray. They tell you what to wear. They tell you what to eat. They tell you where to go for pilgrimages. They tell you what to think. It's insane. And of course, for the Jews, they were basically taught there's 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 this great scale here and the good hopefully will outweigh the bad. And if it does, then you'll make it into the kingdom. So these poor people are trying to bear up under this load to make it into to the kingdom. And the Jewish leaders had no compassion. They had no sympathy. They were overbearing, abusive legalists. What a contrast to the gentle Jesus who came to the people is the good shepherd, as we read in Matthew 9:36, who felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus, who came to them in Matthew 11, verse 28, and said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my load is light. Friends, you will never hear those kind of words from a false teacher. You'll never hear that from a false teacher, from a false shepherd in a counterfeit religious system. Because there is no genuine love for Christ, no genuine love for his word. Therefore, there will never be a genuine love for his people. There will never be a genuine compassion for the lost. They will use religion for their own end. So that they can make money, so that they can have power, so that they can control and manipulate and dominate and pursue their own lusts and build their own empire. And inevitably, false teachers in their false systems will contrive elaborate systems of works righteousness to maintain control over their followers. That's why in Second Peter 2, 3, he warned that in their greed, they will exploit you. With false words. Well, you ask anyone, again, that's come out of some cult or some man-made religious system, and I know several of you in here have been in that, and they will tell you of the onerous rules and regulations and the extreme penalties for violating them. It's common among fringe Christian movements, quasi-Christian movements like the Seventh-day Adventists, who are obsessed with keeping certain aspects of the ceremonial and judicial law of the old covenant that were originally given to regulate Israel's worship and their theocracy. They will have their own sophisticated works righteousness system. And if you violate those things, you will be in fear of of losing your salvation. And so people are kept in fear and bondage. And of course, they also unfortunately affirm the inspiration and the authority of the writings of their prophetess, Ellen White. You see this in other denominations where you will have a pastor that's an absolute dictator. And you have to endure his bullying. 
He micromanages everyone's life. And whenever you step out of line, you invoke his wrath or the wrath of the leadership. Usually these are churches where the pastor is always shouting and screaming. And and there's always this list of external things that you've got to do. And often they pride themselves in being more spiritual than other people or other groups because they have elevated their personal preferences to the status of divine law. Dear friends, once again, whenever you find yourself in a religious system that is oppressive, that is burdensome, where the leadership is overbearing and harsh, know that somewhere you will have a false shepherd. God warned of these kind of shepherds in Ezekiel 34, beginning in verse 2. He says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe to you shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force... And with severity, you have dominated them. And they were scattered for lack of a shepherd and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. Dear friends, what joy it is for us to know and love the good shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. The good shepherd who does not who does not feed upon his sheep, but feeds his sheep. He did not come to be served, but to serve. And likewise, as we close this morning, the true shepherd of the flock will emulate the great shepherd. As Paul said in First Thessalonians two, beginning in verse five, Now notice the contrast for we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. But we prove to be gentle among you. As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own, having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Dear friends, this is the heart of a true shepherd. And when you have a true shepherd, you're going to feel loved, not exploited. You're going to feel served, not controlled, not manipulated. You're going to feel protected and safe, not afraid, not oppressed. And certainly you're going to feel nourished and you're going to feel fed. You're not going to be starved. Well, next time we get together, we'll see that they're all so desperate to be noticed and they are egomaniacs. So may we all rejoice in these merciful warnings given to us by the lover of our souls. Let's pray together. Father, take these wonderful truths and make them a part of our life. Protect us from error, from false teachers, Lord. Give us discernment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. 
For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.